Well, my name is Christian. Um, Josh asked me to speak tonight, and so we are going to continue our series in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Matthew chapter 5. That is where we're going to be tonight. Matthew chapter 5. I have my iPad hooked up here, and so... As we go through this text, I'm going to draw on it and like highlight stuff. So hopefully, you'll be able to see for yourself um, that this stuff is actually from Scripture. While you guys are turning to Matthew chapter 5, uh, I actually lead the worship team here and the sound team. And we heckin' need people. So if you play an instrument or you sing, uh, come talk to me. God wants you to use those gifts for his glory. If you listen to music and can tell me if a song is good or bad, you can probably help on the sound team. So come talk to me. Um, So Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be. We're going to start in verse 38. So let's read this together. Matthew 5, starting in verse 38. This is what it says. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, Lord, for um, this truth, God. We thank you for this text. I pray tonight as we um, look at this text, God, I pray that you would give us a, uh, a renewed vision of your mercy for us. I pray, God, that as we... Um, look at what it means to love our enemies, would we have a newfound appreciation for how you loved your enemies? Um, We pray, God, now that you would speak. Would you speak truth through this text tonight? I pray, God, that if there is anything unhelpful that I say, that this congregation would immediately forget it. Um, But if there is truth said tonight, Lord, would it sink into our hearts and change the way that we live? So be with us now, we pray. Guide us. Would you speak in Jesus' name? Amen. So a fun fact, uh, me, along with a few other of us in this room, were actually running a Spartan race in June. And so what a Spartan race is, it's an OCR or an obstacle course race. Our particular race is about three to four miles long. It's going to have about 20 to 25 obstacles within that three to four miles. And those obstacles are things like uh, climbing over seven-foot walls, climbing up a rope, carrying a hundred pound rock over a certain distance, and doing a crap ton of burpees, all while trying to run three to four miles. And that sounds fun, right? 
No, it sounds terrible. I have asthma, so after, after about two miles, my lungs are going to start singing. But what this means is for all of us who are doing this race, we have to train our bodies for it because it's not normal. At least for me, it's not normal to run four miles and lift all that stuff while I'm running it. And so as we train for this, we've been training, we've trained twice together as a team. There's like, what, nine of us, ten of us, something like that. We train on Saturdays at a park. And um, we need to train our muscles for endurance because it's a race. We're going for three to four miles and we're doing all these things in between. And so we're training our muscles for endurance rather than strength and muscle size. That's hard for me because I'm a boy and I like to lift heavy things. I don't know why, but boys just like, we, we like to lift heavy things, not because it looks good, but just it feels good. It feels right to lift heavy. I think it's the equivalent of like when girls say they want to watch a sad movie because they want to cry. I don't understand that at all. But the whole time that I've been going to the gym, and I think a lot of the other guys have been going to the gym, we've been training to increase in muscle mass and to increase in strength. Um, but as we're training for this, we need to change the way that we train. We're not trying to lift heavy. We're trying to lift for a long time. So that means when we lift weights now, we're lifting a lighter weight, but for a longer amount of time. We're doing higher reps, like 15 to 30 reps, instead of the 6 to 8 that we're normally doing. And so as I do that, it sucks, and it feels unnatural, and it feels like this is going against everything that I've ever done at the gym, ever. And so I have to reorient the way that I train. I have to look at how I train differently. And so on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is kind of doing the same thing. We've talked about this the last few weeks. Jesus is reorienting the way that his disciples have seen the law their whole life. They've been taught it a certain way. They've believed it a certain way. And so these last two sections of this chapter, they're going to go and follow the same pattern that Josh has been talking about over the last couple of weeks. So the four previous commands, Jesus is reorienting his disciples' thinking to show that the law isn't just about what you do on the outside, but God is actually concerned about the heart, what goes on inside, right? The law says don't kill people, but if you've hated someone, you've already killed them in your heart. Don't commit adultery, but if you've lusted after someone, you've already slept with them in your heart. It's the same kind of thing. And so as we look at this, we're going to be, Uh, Starting in verse 38, Jesus is going to reorient our view on revenge and retaliation. So let's look at this together. Starting in verse 38, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So we have this phrase again, you have heard that it was said. And so by now we should be familiar with that phrase, and that means whatever he's about to say next is the law or the teaching that Jesus is going to try to correct. So what does he say? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So that is actually scripture. That's from the Old Testament Mosaic law. So this is holy scripture. This is God's word. And it's actually found in, one of the places it's found is Exodus 21. In verse 23, this is what it says. But if there is harm, Then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So this law was put in place for the judges of Israel so that they would justly 
punish anyone who broke the law. And it was intended to make the punishment match the crime. So there's not like an unreasonable punishment. The, the punishment needs to match the crime that's committed. And that's normal. I think we'd, we'd mostly agree with that. So if you kill someone's cow, one of your cows has to die. If you chop someone's arm off, one of your arms needs to get chopped off, right? If you punch someone and they lose a tooth, one of your t- teeth need to come out. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, that kind of thing. And I think at first, part of us agrees with this. That, that should happen. And part of that is because we're made in God's image and God is a just God. And basically, this whole law is, is justice. We want justice. We want people to be punished when they do something bad. And we want people to be rewarded when they do something good. That's the basic idea of justice. So that's why when someone cuts us off on the freeway, we get all hot and bothered inside, right? And we, in turn, want to cut them off also. They got cut off, or they cut us off, so therefore they should be cut off. That's why we get angry when criminals buy their way out of prison. That's why we hate group projects, because we do all the work, and that one guy that didn't do anything gets the same A that we get. Justice isn't happening. And so that's what this law is about. But what ended up happening was that this law was interpreted for the individual. And so now people are beginning to take their own revenge. They're beginning to retaliate. And they use this law to justify their own acts of revenge. And that's what Jesus is trying to correct. And so Jesus is preaching when we are wronged, when we are sinned against, Our response shouldn't be revenge, it shouldn't be retaliation, but instead we should love and give. And then Jesus gives us a few examples as to how to do that. So verse 39, Jesus says, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And so this word slap right here, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek. So that kind of slap is like a backhanded, like humiliating kind of slap that hurts like your pride more than it hurts your body. And so Jesus says, if someone slaps you, our immediate response is usually, what? You slap them back, right? We know how this goes. If you have a younger sibling, right? When you're growing up, they hit you, you hit them, and then what happens? They cry and you get in trouble every single time. That's how it works. And so Jesus says, if someone slaps you, offer them your other cheek to slap. If anyone sues you and, and tries to take your stuff, give them your jacket also. If anyone forces you to go one mile, so that part right here, anyone forces you to go one mile, so this was a practice. It was a Roman practice in Jesus' time, and so a lot of times Roman soldiers would uh, have citizens, command citizens to provide them lodging, provide them food, and sometimes have them carry some of their equipment and carry their stuff and walk with them so that they don't have to carry it. That was a common thing that they did. And Jesus says, if someone does that, if anyone does that, if the soldiers make you carry their stuff for one mile, go with them for two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one 
who would borrow from you. And so if you see the common theme in all of these things, so he says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him, the other also. Let him have your cloak as well. Go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs. Do not refuse the one who would borrow. All of these things, Jesus is saying to give. So if anyone sins against us, we're not to retaliate, we're not to take revenge, but Jesus says, give. Now for a lot of us, that doesn't sit right. What do you mean we have to give to our enemy? Why should we give to our enemy? Where is the justice? And part of it, I think, for a lot of us, we think that if we give to our enemy, if we don't retaliate against someone who sins against us, if we don't take revenge, if we don't cut off the guy that just cut us off, justice isn't happening and they're getting away with sin. That's the fear, right? If, if, they don't, if we let them go, if we love them, if we serve them, if we give to them instead of taking revenge, they're going to get away. They get away with their sin. But this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. Paul says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And so God says, yes, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but you do not need to be the one that takes out the eye or the tooth. Vengeance is mine. Justice is mine. So you and I don't need to retaliate. You and I don't need to take revenge for fear that someone is getting away with sin. No one gets away with sin ever. Sin will be paid for fully, either in the eternal fires of hell or on the cross of Jesus. But sin never goes un punished. So God is just and God will enact justice, so our response is to give and to love. So does this mean that we have to give to absolutely everyone and anyone who asks of us? Because Jesus said, give to the one who asks. Does that mean we give to absolutely everyone? Do we turn the other cheek to absolutely everyone? I don't think so. And I think as we continue reading, we'll see that um, these are a few ways that we can fulfill a greater command. So let's keep reading. In verse 43, this is the next section. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So again, we have the same pattern, right? We have, you have heard that it was said, and then, but I say to you. So you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor. So that first part, you shall love your neighbor, that's everywhere in the Bible, right? That's everywhere in the law, you shall love your neighbor. Um, We know that, like the golden rule, right? The lawyer asks Jesus, which of the laws is the greatest? And Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the golden rule. And so Jesus here, remember he's correcting their, their interpretation, their, their reading of this law. Um, he's correcting two things here. The first part he's correcting is this idea of the neighbor. The way it was interpreted, 
then was the neighbor was a kinsman or a fellow Jew or someone who lived with you or someone who did good to you. But we know that in like the Good Samaritan parable, Jesus says, your neighbor is actually everyone, including the Samaritan. And so it's not just your family. It's not just your fellow Jew. But he's also correcting the second part. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now that is not scripture. That's not found anywhere in scripture, at least explicitly. And it's never found in conjunction with love your neighbor. It never says love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Um, scholars think that it was a implied kind of thing where loving your neighbor means that you should hate your enemy. And so it's kind of like, it's kind of like this. Um, the Golden State Warriors and the Cleveland Cavaliers for the past three years have faced each other in the NBA championship finals, right? And so this is like the Super Bowl of basketball. For the past three years, they faced each other, same two teams. And the Golden State Warriors have won two of those games. And LeBron James, I mean the Cavs, have won one game. And so what ended up happening was there became this rivalry between the Warriors and the Cavaliers. And so me being a Warriors fan, if I'm rooting for the Warriors, by implication, by the transitive property, I have to hate LeBron James and hate the Cavaliers because I'm a Warriors fan. And so it's a similar kind of thing where people are being taught, okay, I have to love my neighbor, so therefore I have to hate my enemy. It's implied. And so Jesus is correcting that. And so it's the same kind of thing like, like with Giants and Dodgers fans, right? We kind of get that if you're a Giants fan, you have to hate the Dodgers or how everyone except for Larry Adams hates the New England Patriots for whatever reason. And so... It's this idea that loving my neighbor means I have to hate my enemy. And Jesus is saying, no, you have to love your enemy. And so this command, so this is in this like string of six things, right? So we have, if you have the ESV, you have the little headings there. So there's anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, and then love your enemy. So this is the last one in that section. And rather than it being just the sixth thing in the list, it's actually like the... uh, It's like the climax of this whole section. Um, Everything before it kind of shows you different ways to fulfill this command to love your neighbor and love your enemy. And so the question is, how do I love my enemy? You have those five previous things. Give, don't retaliate. Don't hate, don't lust, don't divorce. Let your yes be yes. These are all ways in which we love both our neighbor and our enemy. And so Jesus' teaching here is, yes, be salt and light. Yes, your righteousness needs to surpass that of Pharisees and scribes. How do we do that? Jesus says, love. And so we are commanded to love. So back to our question, do we give to anyone and everyone who asks? I think the answer is not all the time. No. But we are called to love everyone and anyone And sometimes that does look like giving to them, and I think other times it does not look like giving to them. It looks like not giving to them. And so here's an example. If someone, if my friend gives me his Xbox because he's addicted to it, 
maybe he plays Fortnite all the time, and his grades started to drop, and he stopped reading his Bible, and he stopped coming to church, and so he gives me his Xbox in order to repent from it. And then a month later, he comes knocking on my door and says, hey, actually, you know what, never mind, I want my Xbox back. I don't care anymore. I want my Xbox. Give me my Xbox. Do I give it to him? Is that the loving thing to do to give it to him? Jesus said, give to whoever asks. It's not that simple. I don't think the loving thing to do would be to give it to him. Do, if, there is, if there is abuse happening in a relationship, do we turn the other cheek? Do parents turn the other cheek to their children? Do police turn the other cheek when they're trying to arrest someone? These questions aren't that simple. Right, And so I think the command here is to love. And sometimes that does look like giving. I think often the loving thing to do is to give. It is to turn the other cheek. It is to serve your enemy. But I think our, our first instinct should actually be that. Our first inclination, our default response should be to be generous. It should be to serve. It should be to not fight back. But I think there are circumstances, there are situations in which loving someone means not giving. And so the way in which we love people, we need to be discerning in how we love. And so the question is, why should we love our enemy? We talked about how God is the one who takes vengeance, but why else? Let's keep reading. Look at verse 44. So Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So that. So when we first read this, it sounds a little bit funny because it sounds like in order to become a son of God, in order to be saved, you have to do something, namely, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. But we know that that can't be true because the Bible other scripture says otherwise, right? We always have to interpret scripture with scripture. And everywhere else in scripture says that we haven't earned our salvation. We can't do anything to become sons of God. We know that Ephesians 2 says that we are saved by grace through faith, not by works, not by anything that we do, so that no one can boast. And so it can't be that we have to love our enemy and we have to pray for those who persecute us in order to become sons of God. That can't be it. It has to be something else. And so look at this. Look what Jesus says here. Let's do this in blue. So he says, so you may be sons of your father. He doesn't say sons of the father. He says, be sons of your father. So there is an understanding that they are already sons. God is already their father. Or else Jesus would have said, so that you may be sons of the Father, because he's not your father yet. You have to do these things in order to, for him to become your father. That's not the case. He says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And then look at this too. Jesus says, so that you may be. Not become, but that you may be. And so Jesus isn't saying, Love your enemies so that you may become sons, but rather so that you may be sons. He's commanding them to be what they already are. God is already their father. They are already sons of the father. 
and God or Jesus is commanding them to show that by loving their enemies. Um, I graduated from Heritage High School. I don't know how many of you did also. But when I was in Heritage, my freshman and sophomore year, I had Mr. White for PE. And for those of you who don't go to Heritage, Mr. White is this like super fit, black, bald dude. I think he played professional soccer at one point and somehow is teaching PE at a high school in the middle of nowhere. Don't know how that worked out. I think he coaches the soccer team now, which would be smart. But, so that's Mr. White. So he's this big, black, buff, bald dude. And he teaches PE. And I have this vivid memory of my very first, I was a freshman, and I had third period PE, and we're all lined up to do our stretches, the whole like right over left thing, and then he says switch, and then we switch, and we do our stretches. And the very first class, I remember he walks up to the front of the gym, and he says, hello everyone, welcome to third period PE, my name is Mr. White, and I'm black. Just super like abrupt and like forward, I was like, wow, that's odd. And I thought, like, it was, it was super funny to me. Like, we all died laughing. And it's funny because, one, that's like, that could be super offensive. But two, because there's a discrepancy there, right? His name's Mr. White, and he's black. He's not white. And so there, there's, there's a discrepancy between the name and who the person actually is. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's calling for consistency, between the name, between being sons of God, being his disciples, and how they actually live. And we find this all throughout scripture. We know that Jesus later says that whoever loves me obeys my commands, right? And so it's not that we obey his commands in order to love him, but rather because we love him, because we have been saved, we obey. And so obedience is not the root of salvation, but it's the fruit of salvation, So Jesus is saying, love your enemy because it will show that you actually are a son of God. It doesn't make you one. It's not going to make you a son, but it shows that you are a son. The name fits. And so the question then is, okay, how does loving my enemy show that I am a son of the Father? How do those two things connect with each other? And that one's easy kids look like their parents, right? I have my mom's eyes, I have my mom's nose, I have my mom's hair, I have my dad's stubbornness. I really do look like my mom, though, and like when I was a kid, everyone would tell me that all the time. You look like your mom, you look so much like your mom. I hated it because I don't want to look like a girl. And so, but we get that, right? Children resemble their parents. You look at Theo, and it's like, obviously, that's Josh and Amanda's kids, right? Henry is like a little Jeff, and he's just as loud as Jeff, too. And so Jesus makes the same exact argument. How does loving my enemy show that I'm a child of God? Because God loves his enemies also. We look like him when we do that. Let's keep reading. Verse 45. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? This part is kind of funny. Do not even the tax collectors do the same. This is Matthew's gospel. 
And Matthew was one of Jesus' disciples, but before Jesus called him, do you know what he was? A tax collector. So that's super awkward. Jesus is preaching, and Matthew's just like, oh, what's that over there? Don't look at me. So do not even tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles or the unbelievers do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So we're back full circle, right? Jesus said at the beginning, your righteousness must surpass those of the Pharisees. You love those who love you. You serve those who serve you. Tax collectors do that. You greet people that you know, you greet your brothers, you greet people that are nice to you, congratulations, you're just as good as an unbeliever, as a heathen, as a Mormon, a Muslim, an atheist, they all do those things also. But God is different. God sends his reign on those who worship him and on those who hate him. God provides oxygen to the Christian and to the atheist. And so we are to do the same thing. We are to love our enemies as God loves his enemies. We are to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. And so this word perfect here, we'll do it in purple. Perfect. You must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. When we think of God's perfection, I think a lot of times we'll, we'll think of his, his holiness or his being separate or his being without sin. We think of Um, Like Isaiah, when he's trembling before God because he's a man of unclean lips and he lives among a people of unclean lips and he stands before a holy God. And while it's true that we ought to seek sinlessness, while it's true that we can only enter into God's kingdom with the sinless, spotless righteousness of Christ, I don't think that that is Jesus' point here. This idea of moral perfection, of blamelessness, of sinlessness, of spotlessness, of holiness, is the Greek word hagios. And that hagios, that holiness, is commanded a whole lot of places in the New Testament. Paul says it, Peter says it, Jesus says it, but not in this section. Jesus isn't using the word hagios here. The word perfect here is the Greek word teleos. And that's not a moral perfection kind of thing, but it can be translated as like completeness or wholeness or fullness. And so we must have a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees. Remember, the Pharisees had the works part of it down. And Jesus is trying to show them that the law is less about what you do, but it's more about what's on the inside, it's more about the heart. So the Pharisees didn't kill anyone, but they hated, and so therefore they killed them in his heart. So the righteousness that Jesus' disciples are supposed to have is one that is teleos, or it must be full, it must be complete, it must be whole, it must be on the inside and on the outside. You don't just clean the outside of the dish, you clean the inside also. And so that's what Jesus is saying here. And while I was studying this passage, I, a thought occurred to me, but Jesus says, I am supposed to love my enemies. And so I thought to myself, who are my enemies? Do I have any? When Jesus is talking about this, he, I think he has in view during that time, people are being persecuted for their, their faith. People are being dragged out of their homes and slapped and flogged and sued because of their faith. I think in America, 
in a Brentwood Antioch Oakley, it looks a little bit different. Although we don't get physically persecuted, we do get a lot of words. We get called bigots. We may be called women haters because we don't support abortion. We get called unloving because we don't support homosexual marriage. We're fun suckers. I think the hard part is when we lose family and friends because of what we believe. Um, I saw this post on Instagram last week, and I thought it was pretty cool. This is what it said. It was just a text post. And it said, the one thing I've learned from playing video games is that if I am encountering enemies, I'm going the right direction. Ain't that profound, man? Isn't that pretty cool? But isn't that also what Jesus promised? Jesus said the exact same thing. Jesus promised He didn't promise that we would be healthy and that we would be wealthy, but he promised that the world would hate us because it hated him. He promised that we would have much tribulation in the world. James says to count it all joy when we experience trials of many kinds. John Piper says that if if you don't have any enemies, it might be that your faith isn't showing if it's there at all. If salt has lost its taste, what good is it? If a lamp is put under a basket, what good is it? I think, too, it's not only when people revile us because of what we believe, but sinners sin. That's what they do. And a lot of times, that sin is aimed at us, and Jesus says to love them. So maybe you'll feel this one a little bit more. Do you have a professor that sucks at grading and teaching? Do you have a professor that um, gives unreasonable assignments and grades you Poorly, maybe because he doesn't like you. Or maybe you have a manager that doesn't respect your schedule, that doesn't seem to like you, that makes you do all the hard tasks that no one else wants to do. Jesus says, don't quit that job, but love that manager. And that is a hard thing to do. That doesn't sit well with us. That goes against everything that we've been taught. And if we're honest, we actually can't do it on our own strength. And so as much as we can talk about these things and how this relates to us and how we can love our terrible bosses and our professors and our coworkers and our family, Jesus says that all of scripture is about him. And so if we look at any scripture and we don't teach how it points to Jesus, we don't teach how it points to the gospel, we have not faithfully taught it. And so brothers and sisters, the only way that we can ever love our enemies as Jesus commands us to is if we first look at Jesus and how he loved his enemies. You've probably heard of it, but there is a documentary on Amazon Prime, and I think it's on Vimeo also, but it's called The American Gospel, Christ Alone. Our small group watched it together recently. Um, Our staff watched it together. If you haven't watched it, please go watch it. You get it on Amazon for like, I think you can rent it for $5 or something like that. Get a bunch of people together, watch it together. It's super dope. And essentially what it is, is it exposes a lot of the false teaching that is happening in many evangelical churches in America, hence the American gospel. And it particularly exposes the word of faith movement, also known as like the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel movement. And you've probably heard of some of the teachers and pastors of this movement. Um, There are people like 
Joel Osteen, Benny Hinn, T.D. Jakes, Nora Lamb, Joyce Meyer, Todd White, Kenneth Copeland, Bill Johnson from Bethel Church, Stephen Furtick from Elevation Worship. They're all part of this Word of Faith movement. And so one of the primary teachings of this movement is that God is a good God and therefore wants his children to be healthy and wealthy. And they teach that if you have enough faith and if you give enough to your church, God will bless you financially and heal your sicknesses and God will bless you in all sorts of ways if you have enough faith and if you give enough to their church. And they'll often call this giving to a church, sowing your seed, which you will reap later as financial gain or physical healing. So some of these teachers will travel around the world. They'll preach this stuff, telling people to donate money to them and to their church, and that God will bless them with even more money than they donated. And they'll hold these faith healings, where people will come, and they'll come on stage, and the teacher will like touch them, and they'll like fall over and be miraculously healed of whatever sickness or ailment that they have. The issue is it's all a bunch of crap. Like, it's false teaching. It's not found anywhere in the scriptures. And because of that, the faith healings aren't real. In all of these, like, faith healings, so people will come, and a speaker is on stage, and in the crowd they have screeners who filter who comes up on stage. And so they only allow people on stage who have an internal ailment, who have something on the inside that you cannot see on the outside. So if someone is in a wheelchair, if someone's on crutches, if someone's missing an arm, if it's anything that you can see on the outside, they will tell you, you can't go on stage, have a seat, and pray that God might heal you. They won't let them on stage because you'll be able to see that they're not actually healed. And so Justin Peters is a pastor of a ministry and church in Idaho, and he was born with cerebral palsy his entire life, and to this day he still has it. And so his entire life he grew up with crutches and he grew up with wheelchairs, and when he was a kid, someone told him that Nora Lamb, who is one of the teachers of this Word of Faith movement, she did a lot of uh, faith healings and all that kind of stuff, someone told him that Nora Lamb was coming to speak at his town. And so naturally, he's in a wheelchair, and he doesn't want to be in a wheelchair anymore. He wants to be healed. So he and his family go to this faith healing. And so when they get there, Nora Lamb sees him, sees him in his crutches, and immediately tries to run for it. And so she turns around, tries to make her exit, but Justin's dad sees what's going on, and so he calls out to her in front of everyone. And so everyone's watching. And so naturally, she has to, like, turn around and go back. And so she turns around, she makes her way to Justin, and she touches him, and he falls over because he saw that that's what everyone else did when they got touched, right? So he falls over. He wasn't healed, though, because to this day, he still has the same disease. And so after he touches him, she immediately turns to his father and asks what their financial situation is like. And then she goes on to explain that the more that they're able to give, the more that they're able to donate, the better chance there is that God will hear their prayer and heal him. And so it's all a bunch of crap. And so in the back of these faith healing 
things. There are rows and rows of people in wheelchairs, in beds, people missing limbs, children on the verge of dying, hoping that they'll be healed, but they never are. It's all a lie. But people love this movement. People go to all of these things. People want to hear that God wants them to be rich. People want to hear that God doesn't want them to be sick. God doesn't want them to suffer. And so they go to these things, they go to these events, they give their money, they buy their books, and it's all a lie. If your desire to be admired requires you to be a liar, then your fear of man is far too grand and you'll be counted a goat and not a lamb. Here's a cherry on top. This is First Chronicles 16. This is one of their key teachings. In the Bible, in First Chronicles, it says, Touch not my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. And so the teachers in this Word of Faith movement take this text and they teach that you cannot touch the anointed ones, God's anointed, which they interpret as themselves, the teachers of this movement. And so the people who are teaching these things, Benny Hinn, Nora Lamb, all these guys, teach that you cannot touch them, the teachers, the leaders of these movements. And by not touching them, that not only means you can't harm them, but you cannot question their teaching. You cannot talk poorly about them. And so they are essentially untouchable, both in a word and deed. So I'm not healed. I'm still in a wheelchair. Why? It can't be God's fault because he's God and he's good and he wants me to be healed, right? It can't be the pastor's fault because that's God's anointed and I can't question him. The only one left to blame is me. It must be my fault because I don't have enough faith or I haven't given enough money. So these people are, not only are they not healed, but they're taught that it's their fault that they're not healed. And that's messed up, dude. So all these guys, Nora Lamb, Joel Osteen, Joyce Meyer, Benny Hinn, all these guys are false teachers. They are destroying people's lives. They are greedy. They are thieves. They are swindlers. They are idolaters, blasphemers. And you know what Paul says about that? As such were some of you. This is 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. No one is born a Christian. Everyone is born a sinner. Just because your family goes to church, if you've been going to church for as long as you can remember, that does not make you a Christian. You were born a rebel, and you were born hating God, and you were born worthy of hell but God didn't leave it that way. You can turn your Bibles to Romans 5, but I'll have it on the screen also. In Romans 5, verse 6, this is what it says. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still weak. And so we had nothing good to offer before God, we had nothing but our sin. We just sang about this, 
right? We were weary and weak with sin. We were needy and poor and blind, yet Christ died for us. Let's keep reading verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so not only were we weak, but more than that, we were sinners. And while we were still sinning, God God died for us. And he didn't wait for us to stop sinning. He didn't wait for us to meet him halfway. He didn't wait for us to be good enough. But while we were in the middle of our sin, Christ died for us. But Paul doesn't stop there. Verse 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And so not only were we weak, not only were we sinners, but we were enemies of God. And so we weren't just passively doing our own thing in sin, but we were actively, consciously, purposefully rebelling against a good God. And so we are actually no better than Joel Osteen or Todd White or Nora Lamb or any of those people, but just like them, we too were enemies of God. Yet, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son for those of us who believe. And he loved us his enemies, and adopted us as children, enacting justice deserving of our sin on his own son. And so Jesus did not only turn the other cheek, he allowed us to spike him to a cross. Jesus didn't just give us his cloak, he clothes us in his righteousness. Jesus didn't hate us as his enemies, but he actually displayed the greatest love for us and laid down his life for us. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. So Benny Hinge, Joel Osteen, T.D. Jakes, that manager at work, that family member that hates you, that classmate that makes fun of you, All of these enemies are in the same state as you and I once were. And the only way we can ever love our enemies is if we first behold how God loved his, you and me. And praise God that he did indeed love us and redeemed us. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, Lord, for all that you have done for us in Christ. We thank you, God, that you did not leave us in our sin, but in fact you stepped down and you condescended to a people who hated you, who reviled you, who spiked you to a cross, and you have redeemed us as your own. You've called us sons and daughters, not because we were good enough, but simply because you are rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love. And so God, I pray tonight, would we not leave here just educated? Would we not leave here entertained, Lord, but would we leave here worshiping you? and giving you glory for what you have done for us in Christ. Thank you, God, for having mercy on us. And I pray, God, that as we behold what you have done, as we behold that you have loved us as your enemies, would we do the same and love ours. 
So have all the glory tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.